Good morning. Morning. Let's try this. I'm excited to be here. How about you? Woo! All right, all right. Well, uh, thanks for being here. My name is Eric. I get to be the pastor here. And uh, again, I just want to say welcome. I'm glad that you are here. Uh, I don't want to brag, but, you know, when things are going well in my life, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, I'm a pretty good husband. I'm a pretty good father. When everything is perfect in my life, anyone else like that? That, you know, when the sun is shining, when everything is great, when I got a full nights of sleep, uh, I'm just so good. And uh, then something happens when life doesn't go the way I want it to go. And I am not the same person. I don't know, maybe you're holier than me, but my experiences and what goes through uh, affects me. Uh, whether or not, you know, I got no sleep last night, or I've been fighting a cough and a cold all week, or whatever it might be. Uh, that things around us, they come in and they change us a lot of times. And the reality is that life doesn't always go the way that we think it will. That things come in and interrupt the story that we are writing, and all of a sudden there's a plot twist. And we're like, what? Where did that come from? But I'm a big fan of story, and I think the best stories are those where something comes in and interrupts the way that people plan their story to go. We've been in this series on the life of Esther for the last couple of weeks. Esther, this young Jewish girl, at some point, we don't know when, her parents died. And she didn't plan for that to happen. She didn't plan to be an orphan. That's what happened to her story. Then her cousin, Mordecai, adopted her, which is awesome. We talked last week about how we want at Mosaic to be a place where adoption, foster care, just a normal thing that we talk about, that we are just are so excited about that. So, orphan girl gets adopted, and then one day the king's soldiers show up on their doorstep. And they drag Esther away as a young teenage virgin girl. And they drag her off into the harem of King Ahasuerus. See, King Ahasuerus had gotten tired of his wife, Vashti, and deposed her. And his young men around him, the kind of frat house he surrounded himself with, had this bright idea of, hey, let's do the bachelor uh, a Persia version, where we'll get hundreds of teenage virgin girls, and you can have one night's name with them after they spend a whole year you know, in the spa getting ready for this one night with you. And then whichever one you like the best, you can marry and be the next queen. He's like, oh, that's a good idea. And so we talked about King Hatteras, not a great guy, not a pleasant man to be around. And Esther was one of those young girls taken out of her home into the king's harem, something she never planned for. No one asked Esther, hey, what are your plans for your life? Maybe she planned to get married, to raise kids, to, to, to you know, find a good Jewish boy and settle down with No one asked her her plans. And yet life came in and interrupted her story. And I'm going to guess, if you're like me, you've had times in your story as well, where something has come in and interrupted your story. You thought you'd be living in a certain place your whole life, and then you find yourself here in Minnesota where winter extended into May, apparently. <laughs> Praise God, the snow is finally starting to melt. Uh, maybe something happened where you thought you were going to be married to this person for your whole life, and things changed. One of the reasons I love the story of Esther, I think we can all identify with her story, going through life, and just, life doesn't always go the way we planned for it to go. 
Esther 2, verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, out of her house, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So then he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Would you join me in the world? Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you that even though we have interruptions to our stories, and even though sometimes when our story gets interrupted and life doesn't go the way you think it goes, and when we don't respond in the best way, God, that you are still writing our story. And God, you are still the author of the perfecter of our faith and our journey and where we're going. God, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we explore more of the story of Esther. God, that uh, you would just open our eyes. God, this would be your words, not mine. Uh, God, I pray that you would be the, the breath in my lungs. God, that you would be my voice this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to dive into the end of chapter 2 today, and then we'll be into 3 and 4. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along on your smart app or on the Bible. Uh, we also have the Esther 2, verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Mordecai has a governmental position. He's basically uh, in, in charge of some things coming in and going out. While he's sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So what we have is we have a couple of eunuchs. Uh, eunuchs, they're guys who used to be happy that had a really bad day, and they're no longer happy. Uh, so what would have happened is that the Persian king, again, had this huge harem of women. Uh, we think that many as 400 women were brought in, and he'd spend one night with them, oftentimes never talk to them again. But because the king had been with that woman, no one else was supposed to date her or marry her. And so a lot of those women just have one night stand king, and then be tucked away to this harem for the rest of their life. Uh, but what would happen is he'd have these male guards around the harem, and as it would be very natural, you know, as these women are neglected, they'd be never spoken to again by the king, they'd strike up conversations with these male guards, one thing led to another, the guards and, and, and the women are getting together, the king's like, can't have this, because uh, I don't want anyone else to have what I've had. And so what he would do is he would take the guards and castrate them and turn them into eunuchs. Uh, some scholars say as many as 500 teenage boys would be taken into the king's service every year and castrated. Uh, instead of drafting the military, you're drafting into the king's service and you lose your manhood, any chance to have a family to procreate. And so, we've got a couple of his uh, eunuchs who are guards. So think of King Ahasuerus as our president, and these guards are calling the secret service. And these guys are going to try and kill Ahasuerus. And it's like, well, why do you think they want to kill him? Well, he made them eunuchs. That's a pretty good enough reason, right? And so they're like, we don't like this king. We want to end him. Verse 22, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. So Mordecai, the Jew living in exile in Persia, and he finds out this plot, these two eunuchs, 
these two men, these two guards, they want to kill the king. And so Mordecai now is facing this defining moment. Because he's got a couple of choices here. Is he going to save the king's life or just kind of let it go? You know, if I was Mordecai, I'd be like, the king, he's a nasty pervert. He's taken hundreds of virgin girls into his Playboy mansion, let them have a one-year spa treatment so he can have one night stay with them. He takes hundreds of teenage boys in to castrate them so they can be his servants, his, basically his slaves, his guards. If I was Mordecai, I'd be there like, you want to take him out? You want to assassinate him? Cool. That's fine by me. Uh, you know, maybe I'm just not as sanctified as you guys. Uh, that's where I'd be at, especially if Mordecai knows the king is taking his adopted daughter into his house. Man, Mordecai has, has a choice now. What am I going to do? Am I going to do a good thing for a bad man? Or am I just going to kind of let it slide? Mordecai has this defining moment. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write this down. A defining moment. The dictionary says it's a point at which the essential nature or character of a person is revealed or identified. Defining moment where our essential nature or character is revealed or identified. We all have these defining moments in our life. When I think of these defining moments, I think about how time, and sometimes time just is this linear thing we're going through, and sometimes time seems to stop, slow down, or, or speed up a little bit. There's actually two Greek words for time. Uh, the first is chronos. It's time we experience chronologically. It's kind of the normal everyday of our life, chronos. Start to finish a linear experience. <coughs> Excuse me. Then there's this Greek word called kairos. Kairos. It's where time is not measured in seconds or minutes or hours. Hours. It's time that's measured in moments. Moments of time where things, again, if you had this before, where it slows down. Maybe time speeds up. We face these kairos moments as a nation. We come to pivotal moments. What are we going to do? I think right now we're facing one as a nation. How are we going to respond to you know, all these racial issues that have been stirred up. And so we're facing a kairos moment now as a nation. We face these kairos moments individually, where life is going on just like normal, and then something happens that interrupts our everyday, ordinary life. And these are the moments that can be unmissable, or they can kind of sneak by, camouflage, and it's kind of the mundane moments of our life. And Jesus used this word kairos, when he began his teaching ministry in Mark chapter 1. It says, now, after John was arrested, his cousin, John the baptizer, who prepared the way of Jesus, after John was arrested, <coughs> Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled. It's a kairos moment. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, believe in See, God can use these Kairos moments to teach us something. The question is how? how? How do we get to the point where we can listen and be aware of what God is trying to teach us? 
when our everyday ordinary moments are interrupted by these events maybe that we didn't plan, we didn't uh, think was going to happen. Uh, and so uh, a couple years ago, I heard someone talk about this, and so I'm, I'm going to share some of these ideas um, with, with you guys. Accept responsibility and act. Amen? 
And so the second thing, uh, the fourth thing, sorry, is that uh, we want to plan. As you discuss, you plan and say, okay, here's where I believe God is leading me to be, and now I'm going to make a plan on, on those next steps I'm going to take. Maybe you feel God is calling you to launch a new ministry or a new business or uh, to adopt a child or to mentor someone or disciple someone. You need a plan to go into that. In this moment, we feel like God is speaking to you. Then you need some people who are going to hold you accountable to say, yes, hold me accountable to do, and not just talk about it, but actually do what God has called me to do, to finally then to act. And as we move through this circle, we stop and we pause and we reflect, we observe, we discuss it with our, our close friends, we make a plan that holds accountable to do what God has called us to do, and then we move into action. And this part is the repent. And this part is the belief. Jesus, as he calls us to the gospel, calls us to repent. We talked about Tachuba. We're going down one path. Then we realize we're not where we're supposed to be. And we turn and we repent. And that only happens when we stop, we pause, we open our eyes to see what God is trying to teach us in this moment. And then we believe that God is with us. God is calling us to do something as we're going through life, we stop in these Kairos moments, and we go through this circle, and then we go off life in a different direction. We shouldn't continue on like nothing ever happened. We want to take that time. And so we all have these Kairos moments, what I would call these defining moments in our life. And we're going to see Esther, Mordecai, Haman are going to have these defining moments. And I believe each one of us have these defining moments. Let's continue on. In verse 22. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And after the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. Uh, it's also possible they were crucified. The Persians were the ones who first invented crucifixion um, when the Romans perfected it. So they were either hanged or crucified, we're not sure there. Uh, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles, in the presence of the king. Our author, Esther, wants to make it very clear that Hazard knew exactly what was going on. It's like a congressional hearing. And they're like, hey, king, here's what happened. Mordecai found out the plan, and here's the back channels, and here's the fake statements, and he figured out a way to get the news to Esther, your queen, so that these two guys wouldn't hear about it because they knew that he was on them, and they move up their assassination plans, and so Mordecai did this great thing, and he saved your life. And they recorded it like, in, in the full court recording uh, for the king. And so Hazardous knows exactly what happened. Mordecai saved your life. And so what happens to Mordecai next? How many of you feel at this point, Mordecai, who, you know, had a defining moment in his life, he could choose to let the king die, or he could step in and do this good thing for a bad guy who took his adopted daughter into his harem. Yeah, he married her, but... Not by her consent. How many feel like Mordecai deserves some kind of reward, right? It's like, hey, you saved the king's life, you did this good thing, so let's, let's see what happens next. Chapter 3, verse 1. And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agat, the son of Hamadatha. So here's my Bible reading tip for you. You guys read scripture like out loud in small groups. 
say it confidently, because none of us know exactly how to pronounce all these names. So that's just my tip for you, uh, Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamanatha. Like, we know this is going to be a bad guy, because just saying his name sounds like a mouthful of gravel, you know? And so it's like, he's going to be not a good guy. So Mordecai doesn't get promoted for saving the king's life. This guy Haman does. What? Now, the original uh, readers of the book of Esther, they'd be like, oh, Agite. Ah, he's going to be an enemy. See, Going back a couple hundred years, the first king of Israel was King Saul. He was a Benjamite, and uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. And these people, the Amalekites, were had the distinction of being the first people to actually attack and try to wipe out God's people. And so they warred back and forth. And finally, God said, "King Saul, I'm going to give you uh, those people into your hands. I want you to utterly wipe them out and destroy them." But King Saul disobeyed. He left the king, King Agag alive, and some other people, and didn't do what he was supposed to do. Well, now we have Mordecai, which we learned last week, is a Benjamite of the same tribe and descendant of King Saul. And he is now, we have conflict with this descendant of King Ahab. And we have the same conflicts from hundreds of years before as being played out now. And so the original hearers of this would be like, oh, I understand what's going on. This age-old conflict is coming down. And, and you just feel the tension here. Verse 1 and 2. And advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. <coughs> so not only does Haman get promoted, he gets a throne. Like, that's a good day. Like, when you're poor, you sit on the floor. You know, things are going okay, you get like a folding chair in a gymnasium, right? When things are going really well, you get a throne. Um, I really thought today, I'm not feeling great, I should have a throne up here preaching. I think some pastors have thrones. Um, maybe someday I'll get to that point where I can have my own throne. No! Uh, no, no, no. Man, I think. I should have to start somewhere. Uh, but Haman, he's got his very own throne, and he's like, everyone who comes before me, bow down. And Mordecai, he's there, but he doesn't bow. This is a pretty awkward moment. So Haman, on his throne, everyone's bowing down. There's Mordecai in the middle of the crowd, just standing there, like, giving him the stink out like, I'm not going to bow. I picture Mordecai kind of like my toddler, like, where he's probably on a sticky toes, like, I'm anti-bowing. You know, like, the exact opposite, like, just, I'm not going to bow down. Now, our author doesn't tell us why Mordecai doesn't bow down. There's no indication he's anything religious. There's no indication that he's been, you know, bowing down to some false idol or anything like that. Honestly, this is kind of a weird thing for Mordecai to do. Like, up until this moment in the book, he's been kind of spineless. At least that's how I read it. Like, he's let them just take his daughter. He hasn't tried to hide her. He hasn't tried to fight for her. He told her, hey, don't tell anyone you're a Jew, even though we don't know that she would have been, you know, abuse or anything happened to her if they found out she was a Jew, and said, no, don't tell anyone you worship God the Bible. He's just kind of spineless. And here's where he decides to draw the line. It's like, no, you can take my adopted daughter you know, out of my home for a one-night stand at the king, and, you know, uh, that's fine, but, you know, bowing down to the guy who got the promotion instead of me, that's where I'm drawing the line. That's kind of where Mordecai is at right here, and it's not a good moment. 
for him. Now, Haman is also facing a defining moment. Haman looks out and sees everyone giving him the honor the king commanded to give to him. And he sees this one guy standing there giving him the stink eye up on his tippy toes. I'm not going to bow down to you. And Haman says, how am I going to respond? Am I going to let this go? Whatever. Or is Haman going to choose to get revenge on this guy? Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. <coughs> then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of the kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver. That's about, uh, about what the kingdom brought in per year in taxes. So it's a significant amount of money. Into the hands of those who are charged with the king's business, they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you. People also to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. We'll come back to that. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors, for all the provinces, and to all the officials of the peoples, to every province, its own script, and to every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signature. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province for a proclamation to all peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers were, went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa and Citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into the Kairos moment here, a defining moment. Because of this conflict between Mordecai and Haman, Haman is filled with fury. And how does he respond? I'm not just going to take out that guy. I'm not just going to take out his family. I'm going to take out his whole people group. I'm going to annihilate everyone who's remotely related to this guy. We're talking bad, bad gangster here. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on a sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai realizes his mistake and that because of his conflicts, his whole people is now at risk into jeopardy. Now granted, Haman's response is way out of proportion, but it's because of the way Mordecai chose to respond to the guy who got promotion maybe he wanted. Defining moments with great consequences. Kairos moments. Verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Esther's been the queen for about five years now. She probably hasn't had any con contact with her adopted father or cousin Mordecai. And so they find out, oh, my adopted dad, my cousin is out in the street, tore his clothes, he's in sackcloth and ashes. Doesn't look good for me. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. He's embarrassing her. 
but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hafak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Why are you dressed this way? Why are you taking off your clothes and put on ashes? Hafak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gates, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hophek went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hophek and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out his golden scepter, that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these thirty days. Apparently, five years into marriage, the honeymoon is over. The king isn't quite as intrigued by his new bride as he was. And so it's been about a month since he's spent any time with his bride. He's been just hanging out in his man cave, playing Fortnite, or watching the NBA NHL playoffs, and just kind of letting Esther do her thing. Uh, Good thing, like, that never happens today where marriages cool down after a couple of years, right? And Esther's thinking, surely Mordecai doesn't think I should put my own life at risk, because if I approach him without being summoned, I could be killed. She remember what happened five years ago to Vashti? She was deposed. She's like, ah, I don't know if I want to do this. Verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Now, here's something to discuss in our small groups this week. Is Mordecai threatening her? Is he going to say, hey, if you don't step up and speak, I'm going to make sure that you are revealed? Maybe not. I don't know. You can discuss this more. <coughs> for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? Whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Such a time as this. This is a kairos moment, a defining moment for Esther. What is she going to do? This is the defining moment for Esther. So what is Esther going to do? She's going to stop. She's going to observe okay, what is going on here. I'm going to reflect. What does God want me to do here? I'm going to discuss it. I'm going to plan. We're going to see that next week. I'm going to have Mordecai hold me accountable. I'm, then I'm going to act. As she goes through this, she stops. This is the final moment. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, the capital, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king that was against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is a defining moment for Esther. For the first time in our story, Esther chooses to identify herself with the people of God, embracing her Jewish identity. This is a defining moment for her. See, apparently no one in the court, including her own husband, knew that she was Jewish. So for her to come out now and say, actually, I'm Jewish, I've been a really bad Jew. I haven't observed the dietary restrictions I was supposed to be. I haven't celebrated the Jewish holidays that I was supposed to be celebrating. I've been celebrating the pagan holidays that I'm not supposed to be celebrating. Sorry, the last five years I've been a really bad Jew. Second, 
by identifying yourself with the people group that Haman has ordered you to destroy, she's opening herself up in a deadly Persian court to all these attacks. The people can realize, oh, the queen has these weaknesses. I'm going to, we're going to take her out now. She's opening herself up. And in this Kairos moment, Esther has to decide who she really is. Up until this point in the story, Esther was pretending to be a pagan, just like everyone else. And she was controlled by her circumstances. She's been passive in the story I've come down, not initiating any action, but following along the path of least resistance. Maybe you can identify with Esther. Maybe you feel like a passive participant in your own story. You've been carried along by the decisions of other people. The husband who left you, the father who abused you, the friend who betrayed you. And now there comes a defining moment in the life of Esther, when she's faced with taking responsibility for the life that God has given her by identifying as a follower of God. And the decision is really a transforming moment for Esther. This is the transforming moment in her life. See, up until now, Esther has listened and obeyed everything that Mordecai has told her to do, even if it wasn't the best advice. She's very passive. She's a passive participant in her story. And now, she becomes an active agent in her story. Now she commands Mordecai on what to do. She's the one who's going to put together a strategy to plan on how to unmask Haman. She doesn't just go willy-nilly to the king. She puts together a very brilliant strategy. We're going to talk about that next week. And then she's the one who courageously has to face the king. Her decision is to step out courageously and embrace her identity as a follower of the one true God and a daughter of the king energizes her, gives her purpose, and emboldens her to face an uncertain future. She doesn't know what is coming next, but she knows she is in this moment. And she knows her life will never be the same again. Maybe this morning you are facing one of those moments. You need to stop. Say, God, what are you trying to teach me here? And I know that my life will never be the same again. The reality is, probably none of us will face a situation quite as dire as Esther, where our life will depend on it, and if we don't act, our whole people will, will face genocide. But we all do face defining moments in our life with far-reaching consequences. The moment a student decides, am I going to cheat on this test or not? When you decide whether I'm going to fudge the numbers on my tax returns. A husband is on a business trip choosing whether to cheat on his wife with another woman, or to cheat on her by watching pornography. See, we all face these moments. And these defining moments determine the person that we will become. These little choices determine who we will be. There's one defining moment that each one of us has to face. And that is when we hear the news that there is a one true God who loved us so much that he would send his only son to die in our place. Each and every one of us faces that defining moment of Will I choose to let Jesus die for me? Will I choose to let Jesus take my place and take the punishment of my sins to bow the knee to God and to follow Him? Or will I continue going down 
life the same way that I've always been. At some point in your life, you will face this moment where you are going along and you're confronted with a message that you can either be God in your life or you can submit to God and say, God, I want you to be on the throne of my life. And when you come face to face with that moment, your life will never be the same. In this story of uncertainty, we're left with just a little glimmer of hope. Well, we can miss it because our calendar is very different than the Persian or Jewish calendar. Haman's decree to murder the people was sent out on the eve of Passover. Do you remember Passover? If you don't remember it, you can look at Exodus chapter 12. It's a moment where God's people were slaves in Egypt, different country. Same situation. Under evil dictator, not King Ahasuerus, but Pharaoh. And in that moment of Passover, God said, take a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, and then you will find freedom and hope. And through that, God's people were redeemed. And so Haman's decree is sent out on the night before Passover. And that is pointing to the one true lamb, Jesus. See, the same way that Mordecai and Esther, cousins, worked together to save the people of God, Jesus and his cousin John the Baptist prepared the way. When John saw Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's pointing back to Passover. <coughs> and not only is Jesus our Passover Lamb who takes penalty that we should have paid so that we can be made right with God. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I could become sons and daughters of God. Not only is Jesus that true Passover lamb, we see that glimmer, that little hope, but Jesus is our true and better king. Haman and Ahasuerus sat on their throne, demanding everyone to bow down. Jesus is our good king who gets off his throne, who came to earth so that you and I know him. And the reality is, like those two eunuchs at the beginning of our story here, who plotted to kill the king, you and I rebel and plot to kill the king of kings. But instead of crucifying us, hanging us on a tree, our king let himself be crucified, hung on a tree, so that he could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they did. Although we deserve death like those two eunuchs who plotted and rebelled against their king, you and I, we rebel against our king, and the price for that is death. For our true and better king got off his throne, died the death that we should have died, so that we could be adopted into God's faith. This morning, if you have never bowed the knee to Jesus, you are facing a defining moment in your life. 
You have to come to grips. Am I going to keep being my own God and Savior? Or am I going to bow to Him? I'm going to let Jesus take the price that I should make so that I can become a son or daughter of God. Maybe there's another situation in your life right now. Maybe you have bowed the knee to Christ. But as you've gone through life, you're facing now a critical moment in your life. You feel that stirring of God speaking to you. I would encourage you to pause, to stop, to reflect, to discuss it. So you can plan and act and do what God's calling you to do. And then that your life will never be the same. Would you bow your head?